0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston.
1: I'm Adam Forrestain, and I'm sitting right across the table from Damian in Boston.
2: And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's bureau in San Francisco.
0: And before we get to the news this week, this podcast is coming up on its 100th episode, and we want to hear from you, the listener. If you have a question, comment, or even a brief rant, call us at 617-981-4714 and leave a voicemail. You just might hear
1: yourself on episode 100.
2: It's Thursday, February 20th, and here's what we're going to talk about this
1: week. It happened again. A drug company monopolized an old product and promptly jacked up the price. That's Ed Silverman joins us to explain what happened and how the industry is reacting.
2: Next, the cardiologist Ethan Weiss joins us to share a personal story about his daughter with albinism and how raising her has shaped his views on advances in genome editing and gene therapy.
0: Then, our colleague Kate Sheridan stops by to
1: brief us on upcoming data readouts in the microbiome field. And last but not least, we'll be back with another lightning round. This week, quick takes on Warren Buffett's latest foray into biotech investing, farmers' views on fish oil, and the latest prison sentence for a biopharma executive.
2: But first, a word about StatPlus.
1: Enjoying the readout Loud Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to StatPlus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. The world heard a very familiar story earlier this month.
0: A little-known company used a legal loophole to get a monopoly on a very old drug, and then it raised the price on that drug by about 800%.
2: But then came a fairly unfamiliar story. A bunch of pharmaceutical executives called that company out by name, fulfilling an earlier promise to name and shame bad actors in the industry.
1: Stats Ed Silverman has been covering the news, and he joins us now to break it all down. Ed, thanks for coming back on the podcast.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: So, Ed, the story here centers on a company called Belcher Pharmaceuticals.
0: What exactly did Belcher do?
3: Belcher is a small pharmaceutical company that in 2018, mid-2018, won FDA approval to sell a decades-old version of a medicine called dehydrated alcohol. It's been used for years by hospitals and clinics to treat chronic pain or prevent infections in patients who need to receive nutrients intravenously. Belcher happened to get FDA approval for a very specific, narrow indication in connection with use for a uh, particular type of heart procedure. And as a result, it won orphan designation, which usually comes with seven years of market exclusivity. Meanwhile, something else was going on. The FDA had been enforcing a program to get some companies in line, companies that had been selling unapproved products for years they had these comp- these products were m- very old and had predated stricter regulatory requirements among them were older versions of dehydrated alcohol and FDA told those other companies either get regulatory approval or you're going to have to discontinue by early 2020 so after belcher won the approval for its product in 2018 other companies decided not to submit their applications to FDA. And so Belcher found itself, as 2020 came around, as the only game in town. But as a result, Belcher, for the moment, has a monopoly.
2: What happened recently with the price of the drug?
3: Well, as for the price, the older versions have been sold for twelve dollars or $1,300 for a 10-pack. Belcher had actually priced its product when it won approval in mid eighteen. At nearly ten thousand dollars for a ten pack, but no one seemed to really notice because the other older products were still available. But as twenty twenty neared, and they had to discontinue production, and their shipments stopped, and inventories wound down at wholesalers, suddenly Belcher was the only game in town, and hospitals and clinics noticed the big difference in price from almost thirteen hundred to nearly ten thousand for a ten pack of, of vials. As a result hospital and clinics got sticker shock, and suddenly they're facing however many million dollars in unexpected costs for dehydrated alcohol, a decades-old product for which they'd gotten it much cheaper until this year.
0: And it's important to note that nothing about this is illegal, right?
3: No, there's nothing illegal about this. Again, Belcher won the FDA approval correctly. And again, it so happens other companies that had sold other products decided not to submit to FDA. Their products are discontinued as a result, and Belcher is left with an open field. So,
1: Ed, that brings us to this week when about 200 uh, drug executives signed their names to an open letter. Uh, What did this letter say?
3: All right. So, what happened this week, several biotech and pharmaceutical executives took exception to this set of circumstances. They had actually helped spearhead an effort that involved some 200 industry executives who issued a manifesto or a social compact, let's call it, to commit that their products, their medicines, would be priced reasonably, there would be reasonable price increases. They saw this episode with Belcher as an instance where pricing is out of whack, and their concern was that it took advantage of the orphan drug law, uh, because this is not an instance, in their view, where there's new innovation. That took place. Why did they complain about that? Because when Belcher was asked to justify charging nearly $10,000 for a pack of 10 vials, the company maintained that it had spent multiple millions of dollars on clinical work and its FDA application, for instance. But it turns out that while the company did some stability studies, they largely relied on existing published medical literature to win the FDA approval. And as the executives see it, the Orphan Drug Act, this federal law, was passed by Congress to uh, inspire, entice, encourage companies to develop and innovate new medicines for a particular narrow rare disease use. And in their view, that's not what Belcher did.
2: So let's talk a little bit more about this open letter How much of it is a cultural change among drug executives? And how much of it do you think is seizing upon an egregious case of profiteering to distract from more commonplace offenses?
3: To their credit, the executives are addressing an important issue with their social contract. There's no question that there's a problem with the cost of of medicines. Their social contract, while important, isn't terribly specific. There's no parameters, uh, citing how much, for instance, increases may go up or what's reasonable. Um, On the other hand, I tend to agree that the situation with Belcher, while it's legal, is unusual and it does raise questions about the appropriate application uh, of this often drug law. So I think they're right to raise concerns, but it's also a convenient opportunity because it's not really clear what comes of this social compact. And unfortunately, by the way, it doesn't really include any of the biggest pharmaceutical companies, the big global drug makers.
1: So Ed, as you mentioned before, the Belcher situation came about. because So what essentially is a loophole in the law? Now, is there a movement to change the regulations or prevent this sort of behavior from happening again?
3: There have been concerns expressed about how the Off Drug Act is applied or how companies uh, try to make use of it. There have been instances in the past where complaints have come up that a company has attempted or succeeded in gaining additional orphan drug approvals for a medicine. Sometimes it's called salami slicing. There's concern about whether companies are really in a, in a situation where they may not otherwise uh, recover the costs associated Uh, with their effort to win FDA approval for a drug and uh, granted orphan designation. So there is mounting concern about how the Orphan Drug Act is applied uh, or pursued, as the case may be. But like a lot of other situations, it's going to require Congress to make changes. Ed, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.
2: Next up, we're going to talk to Dr. Ethan Weiss, the University of California, San Francisco cardiologist and occasional guest of this podcast about a subject that's very personal to him.
1: Ethan and his wife, Palmer, have two daughters. Their younger daughter, Ruthie, is 13, and she has albinism. That's a condition that makes her very sensitive to the sun and also makes her legally blind. Now, Ruthie's albinism is genetic. She inherited one mutated copy of the OCA2 gene from Ethan and another mutated copy from Palmer. And it's the type of medical condition that's seen as a clear target for intervention with advances in genome editing or gene therapy.
0: Raising Ruthie, however, has shaped Ethan's views on whether that would be a good idea. And Ethan joins us now to talk about his new essay on the matter, which is in
1: the journal Perspectives in Biology and Medicine.
2: Ethan, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thanks, everyone. So, Ethan, tell us about the moment that you and Palma realized that your daughter, Ruthie, you know, then a newborn, had albinism.
4: Yeah, I, I wrote about this in this essay, and I'll never forget it. It's ingrained in my brain for eternity. So, I, I was homesick, and I got up to change her diaper and saw that her eyes were moving in this rhythmic stereotyped way back and forth, which I remembered from medical school, you know, however many years earlier that that just wasn't normal. And I remembered what it was called and it was called nystagmus. And so I kind of left her on the bed and walked in the other room and looked up what might cause nystagmus in an infant. And you scanned through the list of pretty nasty looking conditions and caught my eye on albinism and and I guess for me it was sort of immediately clear at that moment that that was going to be the condition because you know, she was born with this like shock of white white blonde hair and while we were all fair and had blonde hair her hair was like fluorescent blonde like really white and so at that moment I thought you know what I think we have an explanation for all this.
0: So what were some of the challenges that that Ruthie has faced growing up, and how has your family and and her community responded?
4: The biggest challenge for us was the not knowing part, that sort of anticipating having this sort of movie playing forward of her life and all the challenges that she might face. I think early on we just decided we were going to treat her like we were going to treat any other kid to the extent that we could, and so we were pretty aggressive about doing things that maybe other kids with albinism don't do. So for example, you know, we ski as a family. Ruthie plays competitive basketball. She's been in regular school. So there haven't been as many challenges as we thought there might be. She's obviously only 13 now, and I think probably, you know, might face some in the future. But but I think her life has been one where we we certainly have had more come back in a positive way than in a negative way.
2: So it's likely that in the future, some form of genetic editing or gene therapy will be developed that can prevent or reverse the genetic mutation that caused Ruthie's albinism. But you write in your essay, quote, We firmly believe that Ruthie's presence in this world makes it a better, kinder, more considerate, more patient, and more humane place. It is not hard then to see that these new technologies bring risk that the world will be less kind, less compassionate, less patient, when or if there are no more children like Ruthie, end quote. Tell us how you arrived at that perspective.
4: Yeah, so that's the heavy part of this whole thing, right? So, uh, I mean, in the immediate moment after we figured out that she had albinism, we were devastated. And I think it's clear, as much as it's uncomfortable to to discuss it or even think about it, it's clear that if we'd had the opportunity to make it go away at that time, we would have. And frankly, if we'd had a chance to make it go away before she was born, we would have done that as well. And what we found in the 13 years that she's been with us is that, as I said before, she's brought us much more joy. (laughs) She's a remarkable person, and I think she makes us a better family, makes us better people, and she makes the people around her better. And I think she makes the world better and our community better. I'm not going to say that I wouldn't have made the decision I would have made if I'd had the opportunity to make it. And what scares me is... Because that's reflexive and because we all want our children to be the best they can be and to you know, have as few obstacles as they, as they might, that the tendency might be for people to decide to make these problems go away. And so therefore, I think all the opportunity and all the good things that have come from having Ruthie around in our life would be gone. And so That's sort of what I was trying to get at, was that this trade-off between all the positive things that we didn't expect and what that might mean if they aren't there. So kind
0: of zooming in on something you just said, Ethan, you know, as you mentioned with existing medical technology, whether in the IVF process, embryos are are regularly genetically screened before implantation. And as you mentioned just now, and as you wrote in your essay that, you know, had you known of Ruthie's condition before she were born, she either would have been filtered out as an embryo or she might have been terminated. And so I'm curious, how do you feel about that kind of genetic screening technology in light of your experience as a parent?
4: Look, I have to be super clear here that my experience as a parent, and I said this think on Twitter. I'm not trying to be prescriptive. There are obviously conditions where children suffer terribly and families suffer. And I'm not saying that this should be policy or this is the way everyone should look at it. I'm just trying to outline how we evolved in our thinking from something that we really did not want around to now something that we cherish. Again, the scary part for me is that you can't know until you know, right? Like if somebody had come to me in the you know fall of 2006 and said, I can make this go away, I would have leapt at that. And then we would never would have had this experience. And I think, you know, as I've said, the world would be a worse place. So I don't know how to handle that. I just don't know. I'm not even sure if you told me, I promise you, you're going to end up, you know, loving this kid and that she's going to make the world a better place. I'm not sure I would have believed it. It's an awkward challenge that we're going to face with these technologies that already exist. And I think it'll get even more challenging with the technologies that are soon to come.
1: When we think about genome editing or gene therapy, right, we can sort of envision a world where a lot of these diseases just sort of go away. And what you're saying, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that there are some Unintended consequences to that, and that you know differences in people, and not all handicaps are necessarily a negative. Let's say you talk very eloquently about how Ruthie is a positive for you, your family, for the community at large, and for some people they would say that that's a vision that you know that kind of thing would go away. You know, in a, in a future world where you know gene therapy or genome editing becomes ubiquitous, it sounds like you struggle with that a little bit.
4: I do struggle with it. I, I think there are probably obvious cases at the extreme. That everybody agrees on, right? I mean, I think there are probably some diseases, not, and I'm not going to name it off the top of my head, but there are probably some diseases that are devastating where there's so much suffering for a child or for a family that it's obvious that if you could intervene, you'd intervene. And I think on the flip side, right, I think most of us, maybe save some people who have viewpoints that are sort of outrageous, in my opinion, would agree that we're not going to be intervening in these ways to influence, you know, traits that are sort of what we would all consider to be natural variation, say height, strength, athletic ability. At least I'd hope that we wouldn't be going in that direction. I think the more complicated part is we're in these sort of middle ground areas like Ruthie. I mean, Ruthie has a real condition. She is legally blind. If you watch her try to read, you'll see that she puts her face you know, as close as possible to whatever it is that she's reading. Now, she's able to survive and thrive in a world today because of the people around her, the support she has, technology, et cetera, et cetera. I've actually heard from other people who you know, have family members, parents, et cetera, who have albinism, who grew up in a different era where they said very clearly they would want to have had it edited out. They would have wanted to have it fixed. I've asked Ruthie again and again from the time she was eight years old if she would want to have this fixed. And she's been steadfast in saying no. So I think those cases, the case of albinism is an example of something that is currently on the list of things that are screened for in sort of panels of genes that are used for pre-implantation genetic screening. And so the implication is that you might filter those out. And I think that's where I hope the conversation really gets deep is that people start to think about what these, you know, whatever you want to call them, disabilities, differences, handicaps, what their presence and or absence in the world might do to the world. And that was my point was that I watched the... You know, kids around Ruthie, her classmates, her friends, her peers. And I think that they're better for having her around. And I know we are. So I'm hopeful that she and the likes of her don't go away through whatever technology.
2: And when you ask Ruthie whether she would prefer to have her albinism go away and she tells you no, what is her rationale?
4: She's able to recognize that she is who she is And that changing something fundamental about her would potentially change her in a way that she doesn't want to mess with.
0: Well, we all really enjoyed your essay, Ethan, and we will link to it on the show page. But in the meantime, thank you for coming on the podcast.
4: It's my pleasure. I'll come and talk about this any day and every day.
2: The microbiome field is nearing a pivotal moment
1: three companies developing new therapeutics that are derived from fecal matter are expected to announce results from clinical trials later this year. The microbiome field has been in a state of flux and uncertainty for the past several years, the result of a high-profile clinical failure.
2: And that is why these new clinical trials are so important. Positive data could reinvigorate the entire microbiome industry. That could attract new investment and spur the development of new therapies.
1: But if these studies come back negative, any residual interest in the microbiome industry as a way to treat disease could dry up entirely.
2: Joining us to discuss what lies ahead for microbiome drugs is our stat colleague, Kate Sheridan. Kate, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me.
1: So, Kate, for the uninitiated, remind us what is meant by the microbiome and what these new therapeutics aim to do.
5: That's a very good question. There are a lot of different kinds of microbiome drugs, quote unquote. What we're talking about mostly this year is going to be drugs that are made of bugs is kind of the term of art that's used in the field. So this is like therapeutic products that are regulated, produced like drugs, manufactured like drugs, but they're made of bacteria, right? And that bacteria is, as you said, is derived from fecal matter. That's kind of what we're talking about right now, but there are a lot of other variations on that theme. There are some companies that are trying to design bacteria to have some kind of therapeutic benefit unrelated to the fact they're bacteria. There are some companies that are trying to manipulate the bacteria with more traditional drugs so that's kind of the the broad spectrum. It's actually kind of a harder question to, to answer.
2: So you wrote a story this week about these upcoming microbiome clinical trials, which focused mostly on one company, Ceres Therapeutics. Tell us about what they're doing.
5: So Ceres Therapeutics is one of those companies that is using essentially purified donor stool and putting that into people in an attempt to cure a disease known as C. difficile infections. So this is a really really kind of horrible infection, it causes death. And when it's not fatal, you know, patients have have said that it's incredibly inconvenient. It's incredibly difficult to live with. So what they're trying to do is restore, basically, through this drug, a more normal gut microbiome, which they think will help cure the disease.
1: So, Kate, you mentioned Serious Therapeutics. Now, this is the company that had that kind of big clinical trial failure a few years ago, which set back the entire field. So what did they learn from that and what are they doing differently this time?
5: So the company says that from that clinical trial failure, they learned more about how to test people who might qualify for their trial. They said that their therapeutic only worked for a subset of people that were producing a toxin, or that rather that the bacteria were producing a toxin in their gut, and it wasn't necessarily that the gut microbiome included this bacteria. So now with the new trial, they are testing people for this toxin, and that's their inclusion criteria. So that's why they're hoping results will also be a little different this time.
2: So as you mentioned, right now, microbiome therapies seem largely focused on treating deadly bacterial infections like C. difficile. But what other diseases might be targeted?
5: People seem to think that the microbiome could be useful for like every disease. There are a lot of people working on all sorts of colitis, of course, and other GI issues. But there are certainly some people who are thinking a lot bigger. There are a lot of trials ongoing right now for hepatic encephalopathy. I think most of them are using fecal microbiota transplants, which isn't quite the same thing. It's just using donor stool, not really processing it and just testing it to make sure it's safe and then transplanting it. There are also a couple of companies running trials of fecal microbiota transplants and drugs for autism, which is really interesting. So there's some evidence. I haven't really dug into it very much, but apparently there's some evidence that there might be some effect there. Uh, We will see, though.
1: So, Kate, I'm sure you'll be following the readouts from these clinical trials that are coming up and we'll have you back to talk about the results. Thanks for joining us.
5: Thank you.
2: Now we're going to do another lightning round.
0: Adam, tell us what's happening this week.
1: Uh, Well, I guess we'll start with Warren Buffett and his investment in Biogen, right, Damien?
0: Yes. So the news came uh, every quarter, the sort of titans of Wall Street have to disclose their holdings. And the news out of Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's sort of comically sized company, is that they had taken a stake in Biogen and... The sort of tea leaves to read for people was, well, that must mean that the Oracle of Omaha thinks that aducanumab, Biogen's controversial Alzheimer's drug, is going to get FDA approved. Adam, is that the right reading
1: of those leaves? Well, it's probably not tea leaves. It's probably like a Coke, right? (laughs) Because Warren Buffett (laughs) likes to drink Coke. But anyway, um, you know, so I would say, yes, it is interesting that Warren Buffett or someone who works for Warren Buffett, I don't really think that Warren Buffett had a lot to do with this, you know, is taking a small investment stake in biogen and let's be clear here it's small i mean this is like you know a dime sized investment in biogen relative to the very very large portfolio that is managed by berkshire hathaway but nonetheless it's sort of interesting given all of the controversy and the uncertainty and sort of what we expect coming in the in the next year or so with the you know with the filing and the review of aducanumab
2: Next, let's talk about how Wall Street fund managers are thinking about a fish oil-derived heart drug. Adam, what's going on here?
1: Yeah, so in the same sort of treasure trove of reports where we found out about Warren Buffett's interest in Biogen, we saw a significant selling from some hedge funds in Wall Street, uh, selling of Amarin, which you know sells a drug derived from fish oil. How you interpret that selling is a little bit difficult. I mean, I don't know if Damien, if you have any thoughts on kind of how we sort of generally view these sort of backward looking looks at uh, what hedge funds invest in.
0: Yeah, so the reports that you're talking about are are they come out every quarter and they are backward looking as you just said. So they describe the quarter that passed for these hedge funds. So they're, you know, 40 something days old. It's kind of like, you know, gazing into the sky to track stars. You're not really looking at what's happening in real time. And so it's dangerous to draw firm conclusions about, you know, what Wall Street thinks based upon old data, but it is interesting in the case of Amiron because In this case, the quarter in question is the fourth quarter, when Ameren got the good news that the FDA accepted its idea of expanding the indication for that fish oil drug, and the stock skyrocketed in the fourth quarter, I believe more than 40%. And yet all of the sharps or or whatever we want to confer upon the uh, institutional investors thought that was a good time to sell. And arguably that suggests that they don't think Ameren is going to be able to actually boost sales of the drug to the level that some people do, or and maybe more importantly, be able to convince a large drug company to buy them at a high premium. So, you know, we can't read minds and and can't even read lips in this case, but one could make the case that Wall Street has voted that Amarin's best days have passed.
1: Yeah, and I did speak to one of these fund managers who, you know, he wanted to remain anonymous, but he did speak to me to explain why he sold a significant portion of his Ameren stock in the fourth quarter. And it was precisely that, 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 you know, they thought the stock had appreciated, that they were really uncertain about how well Ameren was going to be able to sell this drug. And he also thought that this sort of perpetual idea that Amarin is going to get taken over, bought, acquired by some big pharma company was probably not going to happen. So for those reasons, he sold. So one of
0: biotech's most colorful legal sagas came to an end this week. Rebecca, what's the update on one Mr. Frank Reynolds?
2: So Frank Reynolds is a pretty well-known figure in the kind of Boston biotech scene. He was founder of Pixar Bio and a number of other startups. And he was sentenced uh, to seven years in prison this week for defrauding investors of $7.5 Uh, And the thing that I thought was sort of interesting about this sentencing was how it compared to a couple other more high-profile sentencings of drug industry villains. So there's Martin Shkreli, who got seven years in prison, same length as Frank Reynolds. And then there's John Kapoor, the founder of Insys, the opioid maker, uh, who received five and a half years in prison. So what do we make of these different sentence lengths?
1: So first of all, we can't have a lightning round here and talking about Frank Reynolds without mentioning the fact that he shares a name with the Danny DeVito character on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So, all right, we've gotten that out of the way. I think to your point, Rebecca, you know, this long sentence, it does seem like a long sentence, like for what this guy did. Although, you know, you say he's sort of famous in Boston biotech circles. He's famous for all of the wrong reasons. And I also think from what I understand, like during the course of the trial, he sort of pissed off the judge. And that's just a bad thing to do. Like you don't piss off the judge because, you know, the judge can, add a couple of years to your sentence and maybe that's what happened here.
0: It is interesting and it has a commonality with Martin Shkreli who very famously throughout his legal saga was defying judicial orders and mocking uh, the court and I guess the rule of law on Twitter after being told not to do so and I think that that worked against him when it came to sentencing but it's interesting in contrast with John Kapoor who played by the rules when it came to being tried and accused of a crime with respect to courtroom conduct but Insys is a company that is accused of more than just fraud. They're accused of illegally marketing a deadly treatment. And there are human beings who lost their lives as a result of the crimes that INCIS executives were accused of. So it is kind of interesting that, you know, it's not by any means an apples to apples comparison, but apparently just kind of being a jerk in court is more dangerous than harming people.
1: We could revisit the story when Trump pardons Frank Reynolds. (laughs)
2: That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud.
0: Thank you to Heisen Depanado who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer and Rick Burke is
1: our executive producer.
2: And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Don't be shy and call in to leave us a voicemail for our 100th episode. That number once again is 617-981-4714.
0: And of course, if you like what we do, please do leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts.
1: See you next week for the 100th episode.